0: At the end of the day, what makes a difference and what can move big agendas? And my conclusion was, it is the economy and it is security, and uh, and we needed to um, link up with these agendas. However, I always resisted that to frame, as some have done, particularly in the US, in, not in Europe at all. Um, uh, AIDS as, or health as a classic a security issue about war and peace and so on. O- of course, uh, epidemics uh, historically have sometimes determined the outcome of armed conflicts. We know that, but that's for me was a very uh, tricky basis and not sustainable.
1: Welcome to the Global Health Diplomats. I'm Ben Plumley, the British one. And I'm Eric Goosby, the nice one. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Eric, it's good to see you again.
2: It's great to see you,
1: Ben. So what are the things we've been exploring around global health diplomacy? Is the role of primary health care? And it's something that... I don't know, doesn't seem to get of a lot of attention, it, whether it's because mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's nurses, it's general practitioners, it's community health workers, it's not the cutting edge science, but it doesn't seem to be a central part of our discussions around how we make health a truly effective vehicle for improvements in the global health, the global security agenda
2: more broadly. Why do you think that is? You know, I think that um, people uh, don't realize the complexity of taking a new idea, a new discovery, and getting it to the people who will benefit from it. That uh, uh, cascade of relationships uh, from both institutions and with individuals in in different communities within a given country is a complex orchestration and one that needs attention kind of constantly or it atrophies and it's not sexy and flashy, but on the other hand, it is the only conduit through which the science will be will benefit those who need it. And uh, I think that as scientists, as clinicians, and as uh, diplomats in government and outside of government, this is a critical need that we all, Uh, contribute to. It's not one sector that does it. It's everyone together will put that capability and sustain it. UN multilateral systems are an outside ultra-structure that comes in and helps support that, in addition to what countries can generate on their own and civil society can generate on their own. The truth is that people are not used to working together, and a lot of the effort goes into creating platforms and systems so discussions can identify met and unmet needs, prioritize those unmet needs, and then deploy resources toward them. Until the surveillance and data collection is rich enough to allow for that description of what is happening or is not happening in HIV, TB, whatever disease you want to identify, uh, you do not get the creation of a responsive delivery system. And um, people feel that it's not their responsibility. So pieces of it atrophy in real time. So it, it is quite a challenge. And you know, you and I,
1: I suppose this is an area of ever so slight disagreement. I was really moved during COVID that the cadre of community health workers that had been built up through the investments of the global fund for example and of course pepfar but that they were being mobilized really frontline workers to um to lead in the response to covid and our good friend Prasada Rao was uh, saying that you know we had lost the lives of so many frontline community health workers, not adequately supporting them or giving them the protective equipment that they needed. I've always been a huge champion of community health workers, but you're not so uh, supportive as it relates to them being the primary, primary driver of community, of, of, of frontline care, are you? There's a need for medicine to be driving this, not community.
2: You know, I have spent much of my professional career with Ryan White, initially in the United States, and later with, uh, with PEPFAR, uh, acknowledging and seeking community orchestration as the complementary piece. The, the uh, emphasis on going to planning councils that were in and of the community made up of providers and patients and, uh, uh, you know, the the infrastructure people at the table to discuss what was needed. But most importantly, after the unmet need was defined, what should we do in resource allocation? How should we prioritize that? That discussion is critical with those spe- specific people. And creating that capability has been a focus of my personal career because community uh, outreach and uh, community workers can't replace the medical diagnostic nurses, doctors, laboratory need. That's what we're trying to align with and access. Uh, That needs to be excellent, but it will not sustain itself if there isn't that enabling service ring around the core primary care delivery system that continues to identify and retain patients in care over the duration. And it's that kind of, those different components need to be put together. And to me, the forum for that is in global health diplomacy, because it's the interface of governments with community, with private sector, and with philanthropy uh, in a way that others aren't. So you need to grab the space.
1: And again, what a wonderful way, Eric, you have of setting us up for our big interview this uh, in this episode, um, because the person we're speaking to, um, and it's an interview I did again back at the World Health Assembly in May, um, is with our good friend, Professor Peter Piot, who was the founding executive director of UNAIDS um, and is now a senior advisor on health to the president of the European Commission. And he is a person who has lived the values that you've just articulated. He has, indeed. And I think it's an interesting interview. And I'm really, really, really fascinated to see what you're going to make of it um, in the way that he takes the lessons learned from HIV and applies them uh, to COVID. And, and again, this uh, I'd be interested to see how you see his um, approach to primary healthcare in this. What would you hope to hear from Peter?
2: Well, I think it is just what you've said, Ben. Uh, Peter does sit in this unique position of having a lot of uh, upfront, uh, programmatic uh, experience that informs and enriches his ability to know what the burden is going to be when you engage in a dialogue with government, with civil society, and the inability to sustain that dialogue if there are not platforms or conveners that uh, continue to uh, be uh, available. Uh, Peter has been uh, often the glue in those systems, as have you been uh, in your work with UNAIDS, but also with the rest of your career, uh, and Pangea in particular, uh, very much trying to put those pieces together of government, civil society, with philanthropy. Uh, to get over the hump, but at all times Peter kept it focused on getting and establishing a concrete delivery system as the final output, and his ability to do that I think uh, built the ultrastructure on which a more substantive response could be be begun and uh, uh, and expanded. And I think he should really, as you should, feel uh, good about the fact that you were both very much part of uh, articulating what that need was.
1: Well, that's very kind of you to say, Eric. But of course, um, I follow in yours and Peter's footsteps um, and uh, very much on your shoulders. We were both at Pangaea. But why don't we listen to what Peter has to say and then come back at the end and offer some final thoughts? Sounds good. Okay. Well, Peter, welcome to the Global Health Diplomats. Well... That's the first one for me. Yes. Well, it's the, the, uh, the new um, podcast series that Eric Goosby and I have, have put together and uh, really looking at the role of global health diplomacy. And he and I felt that um, during this trip of mine to Europe, we should really catch you and, and get your thoughts. And thank you for hosting us in your beautiful home here in Belgium, in Brussels. It's just absolutely lovely. No, we, we are lucky, yes. And I'm also glad to have got you out of the garden where you have been planting roses and creating an absolutely beautiful oasis. So uh,
0: uh, In between 100 emails and 15 uh, Zoom calls. But anyway, yes, yeah. it keeps me um, sane. And uh,
1: we're recording this just prior to both of us, in fact, going to the World Health Assembly in Geneva. And first up, um, I suppose I should congratulate you on the award from uh, Dr. Tedros, the Director General at WHO, on behalf of WHO, that is going to you and to Jean-Jacques Mayembe Tamfum from DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, a Lifetime Achievement Award. It it feels very Oscars.
0: Um, What is the award for? Well, I was frankly very surprised when Dr. Tedros called me, and uh, I. But I was very pleased and, and also relieved when he said that the other laureate was uh, my good friend and older brother uh, Jean-Jacques Muyembe, whom I've known for probably about uh, forty years, no, more than that. And um, it's a for uh, it's a life achievement award, so it's not for a particular uh, you know, achievement, but for uh, everything we've been doing uh, a lot of it together Jacques and I, uh, over the years of our career so uh, it's, uh, yeah, I'm very happy with this uh, recognition because the relationship with WHO has not always been an easy one uh, particularly in the early days of, uh, of UN AIDS when uh, the then leadership of WHO did really not want to deal with this uh, problem
1: Oh yes, and uh, y- you've covered that beautifully um, in your uh, your 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 set of memoirs about your time dealing with Ebola and with uh, the creation of of UNAIDS. D- do you get to speak? Is there an award ceremony?
0: Yes, so that's in no time to lose. I uh, yes, I go into that in pretty much detail. Yeah, there's, it's at the World Health Assembly uh, opening ceremony after, I think, 20 speeches by various ministers. And because, let's not forget, this is to celebrate the 75th anniversary of the World Health Organization and uh, an institution that the world desperately needs and um, that has had, uh, you know, a major impact on, on health for people, not only in low-income countries, but everywhere. Mm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You you
1: So you've sort of... Th- said it there, and I'm sort of interested in your vision for WHO, a very forward-looking vision. Um, you, you've talked about the the august history, some of which, you know, as a, um, it was sort of almost old before its time. It was old when it was established at the end of the 40s, but very traditional, very medical. Um, and, and at times it's had a hard time adapting to the uh, changes in uh, the way health is provided but also the health challenges that we that we face but going forward what do you think what do you think the role of who is
0: well if who would not exist it would have to be created that's for sure it probably would look a bit different today if when it was created but um, the world needs a place where everybody including countries that are at war with each other uh, can come together, and um, you know, go beyond the um, that kind of differences, or uh, you know, whether they're violent or not, um, and make sure that um, what is absolutely the foundation for um, for humanity—that's health—can um, be discussed and can be improved. And so, what WHO can do, and nobody else, is that it's a neutral convener. It is. Um, it's a. An institution that can make recommendations be it on the best treatment for disease X to um, approaches to improve the health system to um, you know ensure that there is equity in access to care uh, that's the so-called normative role and that nobody can do because WHO is neutral in terms of uh, you know the national interest and commercial interests. So that is unique, and nobody else can do that. And I think that's very precious. Secondly, the world needs an advocate for for health, and at the global level, and of course at the community level, and, and any level. But bringing that together is also WHO's uh, real function. And then thirdly, I would say is to um, you know a role in term times of crisis, mm. uh, be it um, humanitarian crisis linked to to war and there let's not forget, but natural disasters, but also, of course, pandemics. And that is where I think WHO recently has done a, a better job than in the past, thanks to uh, Dr. Ted's leadership. Um, but that's very different because that's an, or, uh, that's an operational role, which is very different to the, uh, the basic role of WHO, the normative one and the advocacy, which is not very operational. I don't think that WHO has much to offer in terms of research, um, because there are academic institutions that are much better equipped for that. And it is actually even could be considered a conflict of interest to do the research and then to have the, to judge that research in the same institution and say this was wonderful and that's what we recommend. That has to be separated. Um, but overall, I, I think, you know, can you imagine a world without WHO? It would be... Really, we would be much, much worse off, to put it negatively. And now the challenge will be for WHO also to, uh, to go um, beyond the traditional approaches, the biomedical approaches, when we are confronted with the impact on health of climate change, for example, which is absolutely going to be mind-blowing. And uh, I think we're putting our head in the sand. Also, the changing demographics, in, except for Africa, mm. Uh, where there is still uh, a major increase in population. But in other parts of the world, declining populations, healthy longevity should be high on the agenda. How do we do that? And then the structural um, determinants of health. So there's a huge agenda and therefore we all need to support it. So, you know, so you are basically a,
1: there may be some constructive criticism there, but you're a fan and a supporter of WHO. I'd like to pick up on a couple of things that you you said. The first, I guess, is around the the core responsibilities and whether there are issues of mission creep with, with WHO. You mentioned research, and that's clearly one area where uh, Gamekeeper can't be poacher, where you can't, you know, your, your credibility in evaluating research and data for clinical uh, uh, clinical guidelines that many countries use as a baseline can't be colored, let's say, by research that yourself uh, that your institution have done. That seems a very, very obvious and quite dangerous potential conflict of interest. But, but other mission creeps. Now, an area that you and I have worked on over many years, and feel free to say, Ben, bugger off, I'm not talking about this, but the idea of WHO becoming a regulatory body, a global regulatory body, and we've we've had some steps uh, around that with uh, pre-qualification. And I just wonder, uh, you know, whether you think that that is something that WHO should indeed be, de- you know, developing its skill set on.
0: First of all, let me stress that science is the basis for the action of uh, WHO together for Let's say with human rights and the uh, you know um, advocating for equity in health, but the science base should not be mixed up with um, you know generating the science, and so there need to be scientists and the scientific evidence as the basis for the policy recommendation that that should be very clear on the regulatory uh, board that's it's very complex because Regulatory bodies, uh, such as the European Medicines Agency and the FDA, and hopefully soon also the African Medicines Agency and national authorities, they are quite independent from um, you know from other instances that set policy and so on and uh, it 's a very complex issue and so WHO is is not strict to censor a regulator, but there are you know based on their policy recommendations then um, yeah, pre-qualification and so on. And I think that's, again, that's a great area for me and where um, we should be really very careful. Um, and it's extremely important because, for example, um, for uh, the procurement of vaccines for, by Gavi or, the, or, or UNICEF uh, for all kinds of, uh, you know, interventions, uh, they have to rely on WHO um, recommendations but for me, that's not regulatory approval. But it can take enormously long. I see, for example, for how long it has taken by the, for WHO to recommend um, bed nets that incorporate uh, insecticides that are, you know, going beyond the ones that are, uh, you know, against which mosquitoes are resistant. So we, we this is not an academic process. So it's it's something that. It's not a yes or a no. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So this this podcast is about exploring
1: how to make global health essentially a central pillar of, int- of the international security agenda. You, you mentioned it, and I think it's pretty clear now that everything has to be framed um, against the bedrock of the climate emergency. But, um, y- you know, other areas... COVID-19, for example, showed us the importance of taking one health very seriously. The idea that animals and humans getting more in, closer in contact together, that has some particular threats as it comes to potentially new pandemic threats, but, but also <clears throat> economic prosperity and security, peace for all. And, and, and I'd like to sort of test out your ideas on global health diplomacy by looking at your experience of leading the global AIDS response at a really crucial time. The moment when we moved from millions to billions of dollars of investment, to use your phrase, but also where the we- The M word to the B word, I, yes. I remember. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> the M word to the B word. Mm-hmm. And that could be misinterpreted in so many ways, But, um, but you really were able to leverage a moment in time, Ten years after the fall of the Berlin Wall, essentially, and with people like Richard Holbrook, with people like Kofi Annan, and there were there were many others, you were able to make this a moment where the world turned to an infectious disease killing millions, but one that thrived on the most private of human behaviours, and and I really wonder how you were were able to do that. And 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 if I may just kick off with one particular question, which relates actually to the broader conversation about WHO. The WHO is basically a membership organization and its members are ministers of health. And I, I, I guess the question for you to would be really how you were able both to mobilize them but also go to their decision-makers, because at the end of the day, ministers of health are fairly low on the pecking order in, in governments.
0: A few comments, there are lots of questions there. Uh, first of all, uh, you said in the beginning that health is part of um, you know, security. I, I would only agree with that statement if we mean um, human security, a concept that Japan launched uh, last century already, but not the classic uh, security and human security, that includes being um, you know protected from ill health, but also it includes equity and so on. So it's not only the, the crisis, not only the epidemics. Uh, and then I agree that that's in there. And that has a number of consequences if you look at that. And that is, for example, that um, WHO and the Ministries of Health, and WHO, you can argue, is the, the Ministry of Health for the World. Um, and we need that for... To implement, to uh, make sure that where the money is going, um, that it makes sense, is uh, well spent and it reached those who are most vulnerable and so on. But in order to put something really on the agenda, you need the prime ministers, you need the presidents or the kings or whoever, you know, the heads of state and government. And that's what we did with, uh, with AIDS. Um, and it was a partly because uh, we didn't make much progress and partly because I was um, also uh, seeing a lot of reluctance to deal with the difficult issues that are associated with AIDS, difficult in the eyes of some, because it's about sex, about drugs and uh, so on. And that's a difficult issue for many uh, individuals and and certainly in some countries. Let's not forget that there is still a death penalty on homosexuality in, in some countries. And, and we're going, seem to go backwards. Mm. In Uganda, we're definitely going backwards. Yeah, and uh, so um, that means that we, I, I, after having worked for quite some years in academia and then in WHO and then with UNEADS and relying on the health sector only, that I didn't see that we were making any progress. Also, if you want to make a difference in health, you also need the resources. You need the people, you need the the money, and that is something that uh, you can't decide for yourself. And, uh, and it is true that in many countries, a minister of health is not the most powerful politician. Although I would say in high income countries, they often have the largest budget because of social security um, and in whatever form, national health service, whatever it is, uh, Medicare, just name it. Um, but that's a, a minority of countries. But I think with the uh, COVID epidemic, uh, the, uh, the importance of this uh, leadership at the top level has become so obvious. And when you look at it, the response in many, many countries was guided out of the office of the prime minister or the president with an essential role for um, the Ministry of Health. Because um, what I wouldn't like to see is that uh, as much as I'm a fan and an, an advocate for top leadership, because that's also health diplomacy, that health should be as important as defence and the economy in any country and globally, um, that, uh, you know, what I wouldn't like to see is then that the actual implementation, the operational parts, that is that belongs in WHO, in the Ministry of Health. So we need, and for example, for... Um, pandemic preparedness um, you know WHO has an absolute essential role to play but we also need at a level of heads of state and government a, uh, a body that will ensure that there is continued attention because I'm very concerned that one there's the perception that COVID is over it's true that it's no longer a public health emergency of international national concern um but there's still people dying every day, every three minutes or so. Um, and, but there will be other pandemics so that we, we must make sure that it remains on the agenda in whatever, on the, of the African Union, of the G20, of in national governments, um, whatever the body is. One final
1: question on this, and it comes back to what you said about the Japanese. the Framing this under the context of human security. You and I, um, at the beginning of the century, had an interesting love-hate relationship with a force of nature in the uh, world of global diplomacy uh, from a US perspective, the late ambassador Richard Holbrooke. And he was very clear in his mind that the the role here was to put health into a more traditional sense of security. You know, he wanted uh, HIV. It was the first time that that a health issue became a subject considered by the Security Council with a lot of opposition. Um, but he would have questioned, I think, the the well, he did at the time. I know, question the 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 sort of touchy-feely, carey sherry, if you excuse me, nature of a human security agenda. And what it brings to mind in talking to you is some advice you gave your senior management team very shortly after I think I joined you back um, as your chief of staff, that basically UNAIDS was doing judo, another um, uh, Asian metaphor, if you'll excuse me, but the the idea that we were a mouse and we just needed to learn the right moves, and we could we could throw over the elephant. And so what I see you doing is finding the ways in two different leaders, two different disciplines, even, to get to the final the final goal. And so, what for you, after a career in global health, is the final goal?
0: health equity for all law? Well, the um, first session of this millennium of the UN Security Council in January 2020 was on um, on AIDS. And the first time ever that they discussed a non-traditional security issue uh, was AIDS. And how did we get there? Of course, there was uh, Richard Holbrook, ambassador, who, uh, because uh, the US had a, Presidency of Security Council for the month of January, so and that can, allows you to set the agenda. But it was based on an analysis that I had made with a number of uh, friends and critics of, uh, of UNAIDS because I felt we had not made any progress. And I was trying to think at the end of the day what makes a difference and what can move big agendas. And my conclusion was it is the economy and it is security. And uh, and we needed to um, link up with these agendas. However, I always resisted that to frame, as some have done, particularly in the US, in, not in Europe at all, um, uh, AIDS as, or health as a classic security issue about war and peace and so on. O- of course, uh, epidemics uh, historically have sometimes determined the outcome of armed conflicts. We know that. But that's for me was a very uh, tricky basis and not sustainable. Uh, but I said, yeah I had read a book uh, about judo about a small company that can uh, use the weight of a bigger one and put that one on the on the floor. I didn't want to put anybody on the floor, but making sure we can tap in those bodies, those um, platforms where the big decisions are made. And frankly that's where AIDS has really changed completely how we deal with, with health. It came on health became on the agenda of um the G seven, not G twenty, took a while, the World Economic Forum, the African Union, it was then called the Organization of African Unity, where President Obasanjo from Nigeria convened a special summit on, on AIDS. Um so for me, that was really extremely important. And we need to fight that we keep AIDS, sorry, that we keep health. And not only pandemic preparedness, but health also um, on, on the top agenda. And too often, health is seen as an expenditure, mm. as a cost uh, in governments. But it is the um, foundation, you know, just with as education and well-being of people. And I don't think it's wishy-washy. It's a very hard outcome. Because when people die, that's uh, you can't think of a harder outcome. And uh, But it has to be also be well-defined. I mean, if you say we want to tackle everything and all the social determinants of health and the commercial determinants and just name it one go, that's paralyzing. So it, the trick is, I think, is to say, just as with climate change, it is um, an imminent disaster. It's already happening. What are the five things that we really can do to make a difference and mobilize the world around that. And that's one of the jobs of WHO. And I think WHO did that very well now around COVID. It's it's interesting you raised COVID
1: and it's a, a good point to to settle on for a moment. Um, AIDS changed everything. I passionately believe that and I learned that from you. How has COVID
0: changed things? I think COVID has um, made it clear that uh, how vulnerable we are as a human species, Uh, that a stupid virus that comes from probably from a bat, um, you know, can disrupt the globe, everything. I mean, and with a huge impact on the economy and so on. What we saw with AIDS was kind of a prefiguration of that. It was, um, although at the end of the day, AIDS has now killed more people, probably about a double as um, a COVID, but it's been around for longer. And uh, so, and that that prime ministers, that heads of state were forced to deal with it. And many were very uncomfortable with it. And I understand um, because we had to deal with a lot of uncertainty. Um, uh, The science was not there yet in the beginning. And we have been very lucky that we had these vaccines. They didn't come out of the you know didn't fall out of the sky. It was based on like decades of, of basic research and so. On. But we were lucky. Let's not forget for HIV, we still don't have a mm-hmm. vaccine, and um, so it has changed the fact that one health is of um, overriding importance for um, the economy, for the nation, not only for individuals. And secondly, I would say second element, and that's probably even more um, innovative in the eyes of some is that um, you can't tackle an epidemic in, uh, you know, in your country even if you're an island or a very big country. It, there is a need for a global approach uh, certainly for a regional approach I'm a strong believer that the regions have really emerged as a very important um, platform and entity to deal with this epidemic because regions have peop- countries Communities in the same region have more in common with each other than, you know, with the communities on the other side of the world. That doesn't mean that we don't have universal type of guidance. Um, you were quite impressed with the
1: way Africa stepped up. And, of yes. course, our very good friend Michel Cidibe, um is also part of that movement. He's going to be a guest on the podcast in the, in, in, in the next couple of months. Um, can you talk a bit about how you saw
0: how you see Africa's leadership um, evolving. I think a silver lining of this pandemic has been and continues the fact that um, for the first time that I am aware of, that Africa, through the African Union, African Union, so uh, at the level of the heads of state with President Ramaphosa, President Kagame, um, Sissikedi, the ones who were in charge, um, you know, and then Africa CDC under the leadership of uh, John Kengasong, a remarkable leadership, that they have not waited for um, you know charity from coming from the west or the north or whatever we call it these days. Um, you know, to provide with vaccine, they negotiated directly. They took, they put in place um, diagnostics um, sequencing um, with support from um, wealthier countries. That's true all under their agenda and negotiating directly with companies. And uh, I think it's, it's, uh, for me, the beginning of um, what I see as a very positive trend. um, And that is that the um, responsibility, the decision-making, the policies are set in the region. And we've seen it also in the European Union, because ironically, uh, besides Brexit and Ukraine, but COVID has united Europe, but also because we were lucky to have Ursula von der Leyen as the as the leader, and 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 in we had in in the African Union as well. So and that the president uh, of the European Commission, president of the European Commission, and I must disclose I'm her special advisor on COVID and and, and health now, but um, the um, was going to go say yeah, and and also it has. Um, uh, revealed that um, Africa can no longer rely on the goodwill of others, and uh, for example, just very concretely on vaccines, we all um, had counted on um, on India as the pharmacy of the world. Plus, let's not forget that Europe has exported hundreds of millions of vaccines, uh, including to low-income countries through Covax, um, because we, like Belgium, is the third producer of. Um, biopharmaceuticals in the world with only 11 million people so we always produce far too many but when India was confronted with a major epidemic of COVID uh, Prime Minister Modi decided to uh, use the vaccines for his citizens and I don't use the word vaccine nationalism and all that I would have done the same honestly because he's elected by Indians Uh, the first job of a head of state or head of government is to deal with the welfare of your citizens while making sure that the rest of the world is not a victim of it. So there's only one uh, option for me to um, ensure um, equitable access in the future because we're talking about Sub-Saharan Africa. The rest of the world, you know, uh, Asia is such a producer of medicines and vaccines, is local manufacturing. That doesn't mean in every single country, but that there is manufacturing of vaccines, of essential drugs, of diagnostics in Africa. And that, for me, is a very important agenda because it will change the power relations and uh, it will also um, promote and stimulate um, economic development. It will keep the um, trained uh, workforce in the country. And that's also, I'm very proud to say that the EU has allocated over 1 billion euro to support vaccine manufacturing in Africa. And I'm going next week to Astrid Pasteur in Dakar, and and, and they're really ahead. And they have already demonstrated the ability that they can uh, produce vaccines. And uh, the yellow fever vaccine, they've been doing this for decades. Because making vaccines, it's not just about IP and so on. It's a hugely complex um, process, where you have to be absolutely obsessed, let's say passionate, obsessed by quality assurance, because if you drop one small detail, that can really ruin the whole vaccine. Um, so I think that's, uh, I'm very optimistic that thanks to the COVID epidemic, we'll see this huge shift, a fundamental shift in the power relations in health between you know Africa and the rest of the world. Well, Peter,
1: I mean, what a lovely, upbeat, and positive way to to bring this uh, interview to a close. Um, I think it's so easy for us to look at the challenges facing the world and think there are no solutions. But I I, I really appreciate that that passionate push for the particularly sub-Saharan Africa's leadership, and that you really see it as, as doable in the short to medium term. Well, I guess it just remains for me to wish you um, a safe trip to Geneva. Enjoy getting the award. Um, and um, thank you for
0: sharing your thoughts with us. Thanks for seeing you again and for everything you're trying to communicate on health. Well, Eric, what did you think?
1: I've got to say doing that interview the thing that biggest the biggest surprise for me was around how forthright Peter was about the need post covid of regional if not national local manufacture of uh, vaccines um medications and diagnostics so that particularly sub-saharan africa can be as prepared as possible for whatever is coming, whatever disease X is going to be. Um, were you surprised by that? And I, and I guess, how do we make that a reality?
2: Uh, I was uh, not surprised by it. I think Peter's correct to, to put it out there as a critical ingredient to a, a successful and sustained response, regardless of the disease you're talking about pharmaceutical manufacturing capability, the ability to make diagnostics and therapeutics in the region or country that is going to use them, uh, uh, facilitates the access, uh, need, but you still will need to build that delivery system to reach the patients on a pill and mouth level, uh, to, uh, ensure that. And that takes, uh, a delivery system that stands itself up and remains in place between outbreaks uh, and keeps a population linked. Um, I think that uh, there's no question to me, I was surprised at his emphasis on it, uh, but there's no question to me that having local capability, manufacturing capability, uh, will facilitate access and we see that in the developed setting everywhere. Uh, and I, so I do think we should work for that. It is an important ingredient. And and I think that you know,
1: given everything that has happened at the UN General Assembly and this focus on uh, leadership of the South, it Peter has always been a champion of that. But it was uh, for me, it was really good to see that uh, reaffirmed. And you, you know, particularly his. Um, uh, note that our dear friend John and who of course is now at PEPFAR, was really instrumental in driving that at the Africa CDC. So yeah I felt I, I, I thought this was an, an important set of statements from Peter. You
2: no, know, I think I think I agree with you that they were important and I thought they were all uh, thoughtful. I thought his uh, focus on John McKesong and his unique relationship with African leadership, and the trust that John already has with senior people at the president level uh, will facilitate movement toward uh, expanding into a manufacturing capability, getting external or other investor interest in it, and creating kind of a venture capital uh, network within a region that supports that regional effort to stand up that manufacturing capability. I believe that will be a unique challenge to pharma to the pharmaceutical companies to uh, make themselves available to identify molecules and develop those molecules once developed to put them in a manufacturing system that has high quality controls and delivers a pill that does the job well i i guess that's our time up
1: for this uh for this episode i look forward to seeing you next time hopefully we can be in person um, and sit in our nice yellow chairs looking forward to that um take care eric thank you ben it's my pleasure it's always a pleasure to see you talk to you well that's it for this episode thanks again to my co-host um eric gooseby thanks to eric aspera our director and producer from Newsdoc media thanks to our new york producer chad parisman our production coordinator is Yvette Raphael. No, it's not. It's Waisha Raphael. I beg your pardon. And we are a project of the Global Listening Project. Uh, please subscribe and give us five stars. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks, Ben. Thank you.